to the Barely Science Podcast. This is the Barely Science Podcast. My name's Alec. I'm one of the two Barely Scientists, and here with me, as always, is Ryan. Hello. Now, I've been thinking a lot about different things today, Ryan. Oh, that's interesting. And what I want to talk to you about today. Okay. Aliens. Ooh. And, you know, I, I wish I could spike my hair up and throw my hands <laughs> up like the History Channel guy. Yeah. Aliens. <laughs> They're a common topic amongst astronomers mm. um, in that they're actually one of the most interesting things to think about. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, I guess one of the, the great fundamental questions, you know, are we alone? Uh, are there other people mm. like us? Yeah. Thinking about the same thing. It's, you know, it's a, it's a profound thought. It is. And um, for a long time, it's been considered as well. So, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's also an idea that attracts a lot of um, non-scientific ideas to it. Why, are you um, forming an opinion based before we go through the evidence? True. I shan't, I, uh, <laughs> I shan't have any prejudice about this, but... It is it is something that attracts um, a lot of attention from the media, from a bunch of you know different types of people, and it's broadly an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, um, inspired lots of movies, inspired lots of books. It's inspired a lot of science as well. It's inspired entire religions. Yes, what is it? God, I've forgotten. All that. hail our overlord Zenu. Yes, there we go. Uh, how um, high is your thetan today? Uh, I am well. I am. I don't know. I can't claim to be operating <laughs> Thetan. I don't know. That might get me sued. <laughs> yeah. But I guess it's probably worth um, starting off by talking about the relating it to astronomy, our, our area, because mm. it's, it's our job to keep an eye on the skies and see how things change and mm-hmm. you know what's coming towards us. And that's often one of the things that people point to as evidence of aliens visiting Earth. Now, obviously, there's a lot of different ideas about aliens, um, whether they're out there, and hopefully we'll get into those today about whether Mm. there are aliens out now, you know, in our galaxy, in our universe. Yeah. Um, But let's let's keep it on Earth to start off with. All right. And things that we can see from here. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of different things that happen in our sky, especially the night sky, and we like to keep track of them. Yes. The first thing you can see when you look up in the night sky is, of course, the stars. Mm. And, and as we learned last time, yeah. they don't influence your your life in any way whatsoever. <laughs> no, at least that's what the evidence would show. Yes, unless they explode. Uh, well, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so now, if you're if you spend enough time in the night sky or looking at the night sky, um, as we discussed in our first episode, oh, our second episode, sorry, mm. which is the sky will rotate. Yes. So, of course, it's the Earth spinning um, 360 degrees every day. Mm. And that that means that it's about 15 degrees every hour. Mm. So you'll see the the sky rotate. You know, it won't rotate. It won't appear to rotate immediately in front of you. Yeah. But if you wait long enough, you'll see that things will rise and set and things will rotate about the celestial poles Mm -hmm. like we discussed in our Flat Earth episode. Mm. Now, the second thing you'll notice are the planets. Yes. Because they're the easiest thing to see, the stars and the planets. So I pose it to you, Ryan. Mm. How do we tell the difference between a star and a planet? Ah. 
Well, you can look up on your friendly star chart. And <laughs> no, 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 no. The ancient Greeks didn't have star charts. The ancient Egyptians didn't have star charts. So no, don't cheat. Oh, How can the, you tell the difference? The modern age makes us so lazy in our approach. It does. It's fantastic. You just go to Google straight away, don't you? Generally, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the way... I would look for a planet. If I didn't have an understanding of where they should be in the sky based on a vague familiarity, yeah, would be to look for relatively bright things. Yeah. Um, and if I didn't know what the ecliptic was, which is the thing mm. that the planets live on, and I didn't know to look along the ecliptic to find bright objects along there, uh, I would... Find a pair of binoculars, mm. and then I would interrogate each one of the bright stars I could see. Yep. And this is on one night. They're, they're, I'll, I'll come to another method in a moment. Okay. <laughs> and I'll see which one flickers uh, the least through binoculars. Yep. So, yeah, that's... Um... We can go back to the age-old nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yeah. Um, now, of course, it's not the star itself that is twinkling. It's the atmosphere that we're looking through. Um, so this is a problem at visible wavelengths, mm. that as, it, as the light passes through um, all the air, the air is actually shimmering and shaking around a lot. Yeah. Um, you can see a similar type of effect. You'll notice it with your eyes at least. Of say um, above really hot air, so you can see objects like you know an effect like a mirage. Mm. You'll see the shimmer and shake, or you mm. know um, if you look at the air, if you have like light shining through above like a pot of boiling water, and you can if you, you can see that the the water vapor coming through will kind of distort and change the yeah. the light coming through the air. Um, the exact same thing happens when you try to look at stars, mm. and so even to your naked eyes, they'll they appear to twinkle. Right um, now. The difference is, of course, with planets is that actually they're a lot closer than the stars. Mm. So most of the stars are so far away that they're acting like little points of light, shining light towards us. And so they, they tend to twinkle quite a lot. Mm. But the planets are close enough that they actually have a bit of what's called extent, as in they have a bit of actual size to them. As they're in a they, little disk on the sky. Yeah, you can actually, if you have a telescope, of course, you can, you can see quite stunning detail. Mm. You can see that they have Except a little Except with disk. Mars. <laughs> Of, yeah, Mars is it's, Mars sucks. Mars really does suck. So it's 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 such a shame because it's a, such a cool place to visit and to send probes yes. to and all that kind yes. of thing. But you know, you, we, if we have like a school visit, um, and you know, some young excited school child will be like, "Oh, can we look at Mars?" It's like, well, we can. It's a red dot, though. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see nothing special there. Um, but it still has some extent on the sky. Mm. And that little bit of extra width, that little disc shape, actually stops it from shimmering. Mm. Or at least not so much. Yeah. So that's one really good method. So that's one. That's a way that without the assistance of um, a star chart or cheating, mm. I would say, <laughs> and, but even without you know any knowledge of where things should be, mm. quote unquote, on the sky, yeah. then you can figure that out that way. Now, you mentioned the second method. So... What would be your other way of my out? My other way would be the long game, mm. which is what the first uh, astronomers or astrologers, if you uh, listen to the last podcast, yeah. uh, did, is they measured the positions of stars and planets 
yeah. or what became known as planets, the wanderers, yeah. each night in the sky. And they found that the wandering stars just moved about the place in, yeah. a, in a strange way. So you could do that. You go out and measure the position accurately of all the bright things in the sky yeah. and even some of the fainter things. And you'll find that most of them will follow the same path night after night. Yeah. But some of them will do this weird old roaming pattern, mm. which is indicative of a planet. Yeah. So a couple of, of course, there's caveats like with everything. Every mm. rule, there are exceptions to the mm. rule. Um, when a planet is especially down low on the horizon, so you're looking. What that means is that you're looking through a lot mm. more atmosphere than if you're looking straight up. Um, so if you can, that's just because of the geometry of the situation. Yeah. Um, if you're looking through a circle, which is the shape of the atmosphere, it's spherical. Mm. You'll end up be. You'll end up looking through more stuff. It's kind of like a, a hypotenuse problem, I guess. With the if you mm. remember back to your high school geometry, you're looking through a longer path. Mm. A greater um, air mass, we in the trade call it. Yeah. So what that means is that you can end up seeing a twinkle on mm. your planet. So twinkling isn't the definitive way. What defines actually a planet, as you mentioned, is it's wandering across the sky. Mm. Now, of course, they're not the only things to wander across our skies, but they wander oh. in a very particular way. <laughs> mm. um, so there are a number of different things you'll be able to see in the mm. night sky. Um and some of them might be what referred to as UFOs, of course, unidentified flying objects. And I think yes. a, lo- a lot of the time people forget that the U in UFOs unidentified. Not alien. Yeah. Alien? <laughs> I don't is that, know, man. <laughs> so is this your just New Zealand voice getting in the way? Look at that alien flying <laughs> object over there. <laughs> um, it fits. It, I guess it does. <laughs> so... Of course, actually, a lot of things you can identify. Um, and then even if you can't, the, the irony I find is that if you can't identify it, then how do you know what it is? But we'll, mm. we'll leave that for now. We'll get on to things that we do can identify. you know what's identify. really flying? True again. But mm. we'll get on to things we can identify. And maybe this will be a, a useful tool, say, if you ever see one of these more rare events. Yeah. Um, now, I'll pose a couple of things to you. I'll describe oh, the object, all right. and I want you to try and tell me what I'm seeing. Yes. I see a bright dot, mm-hmm. and it moves swiftly across the sky in an Ooh. arc. But it, I can see it the ah. whole time. It doesn't change in brightness, mm-hmm. and it just moves, in, but it's moving very quickly, bright, like a star, but moving swiftly Does across the sky. Does it have a particular direction across the sky? Yes. Is it, is it going north to south? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> You're working for the American government. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, I, I would su- suggest yeah. that it's likely a satellite. Ah, so why would a satellite be moving north to south? Well, spy satellites or satellites that like surveying the ground like to move north to south in what we call a polar orbit yep. so that the Earth kind of rotates underneath the satellite as it orbits the Earth. Yeah. So you can effectively scan the entire surface of the Earth. Yeah. So you can you have some kind of uh, middle ground between, say, an equatorial where you just orbit around the equator and a polar. So you'll have some kind of inclination to your orbit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if it's if it's a bright star, and even if it disappears as it crosses the sky, mm. it's still probably a satellite. And some sometimes it can get super bright. There is a class of satellites called the Iridium satellites, yeah. which were sent up. Um, when was it? Like in the eighties or yeah, something? Yeah, I was, was going to say I think in the eighties. Yeah, the which 
have a particular geometry to them because, mm. of course, satellites are just reflecting sunlight down to us because they're much higher up than what we are. So they they are still in line of the sight when you can line of sight with the sun when you can see them. Yeah, because the iridium satellites have a rather peculiar geometry. You can get really bright events where yeah. uh, they just mag they just focus their light down to your particular position yeah i was gonna so yeah the iridium they're called an iridium flare mm. um and it's they capture the sunlight incredibly well with their little their solar the way their solar panels are shaped is quite particular mm. and so you'll see just a bright flash mm. and they'll often be quite fleeting um so what you're seeing in that case is actually kind of like a glint or of the object what if it was an alien spaceship going into hyperdrive Ah, I mean, that is a possibility. But for now, we, we know that the iridium flares <laughs> occur. And we can discredit that that hypothesis I put forward because we know the positions of these satellites very accurately. Exactly. So if you see a bright flash in the sky, you could look up the database and yep. see, ah, there was an iridium satellite flare yeah. predicted. And at the, that time. So we can we can go back to what I tr- told you not to do right at the start, mm-hmm. which is to not cheat. But of course, in fact, if you can, if you're clever enough to try and remember where it is, if you can remember its rough position, if you know your sky relatively yep. well, and that's quite a useful thing to know, as in where the constellations are and that sort of thing. Mm. If you can remember where you saw it on the sky, then you will be able to then you could go up and look up. A lot of these satellites mm. have public databases mm. that you can look up. Obviously, spy well, satellites probably won't. The United Nations keeps a database of everything that goes into space. Yeah. I'm not sure if that includes the spy stuff. Though. I don't think the spy satellites will be mm. in a public catalogue, but you can um, look up a lot of these things. And so you can confirm for yourself whether or not what you saw was actually from mm. the US government spying on us or um, trying to communication find how the changing. How dare they? <laughs> Um, of course, there are other things. So I'll describe another mm-hmm. object to you. Okay. Um, relatively low to the horizon, mm. moving in a straight direction mm. and blinking. <laughs> this, I, I know, uh, it made it a bit see, easy. <laughs> you see, because you're putting me on the spot, I'm getting all like hyped up thinking it's going to be hard. Uh, yeah. But it's obviously a UFO. It's an alien, right? Yeah. Only aliens would blink green and red at us, right? Yes. I mean, they're probably green themselves. They're just like flashing us as they <laughs> fly along. M- mooning us. Yes. Like, going by, your mom's your dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this, this unidentified flying object could be identified as a plane, I'm guessing. Yeah. But it, it is quite amazing how often people point up because... If a plane's, plane's a fair way away, mm. it can often and or you know they can be quite high, yeah. Um, and they're so far away, all you'll see is this, is this blinking, and often they can be moving very fast across yeah. the sky, and they look really odd. You're yeah. Like, what? And especially at night, you just see a blinking light. You're like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Um, and or you look at your lovely long exposure for your astrophotography, and you mm. see like this lovely green and red dots appearing across There's your aliens image. in tandem going fighting a battle <laughs> over a. Got, yeah, so in that case, it's it's a plane. So they're the kind of the most obvious. Oh, I I missed one. Ooh, I missed a couple actually. Oh, uh, these. So we've covered the man. These are the kind of the the human made objects that you'll oh, tend to course, see. Oh, of course, yes. Now I'll place another thing, which is what if you see another bright flash? So mm. um, a short lived object, mm. and then you go you you 
you remember, ah, Alec and Ryan told me to remember where it was. And you go and look up Iridian satellite position and it wasn't there. Mm. Yeah. What an interesting concept. But in this case, it's more of an, I would say it most likely has an orange tinge to the light too. I'll give you a helping hand. I'm not sure if that helped or just confused me. <laughs> uh, I, I, would, I would hazard a guess and say that it might be a meteorite. Ah, Am I wrong? You are wrong. Oh, no. Because, of course, the astute among our listeners will know that you can only ever find a meteorite on the ground. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. Got him. Technicality once again. Got him. What is it? Meteoroid, is it? Yes. No. No. Wrong again. Jesus Christ. How many names these things have? Um, It's it's, it's three. (laughs) It's the only one that's left. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the one I've forgotten. It's Meteor. Of course, yes. Or, um, often referred to as a shooting star. Ah, very good. Um, so, of course, the shooting star is a terrible misnomer because... The sky is falling. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry that um, Chicken Little, but we'll... <laughs> of course, it's um, not the sky or the stars that fall. Because yeah. we know that the, the celestial sphere is just what we call the stars or like the way they live. They don't actually live on a sphere. Mm. We've managed to send objects out into space and they haven't hit a wall yet as far as we know. Or is it being covered up by the NASA? It could be the NASA. It could be <laughs> being covered up by the NASA. Just like the guarding the ice border wall. And <laughs> no, we, we've debunked that already. <laughs> um, but in this case, it's most likely rocks coming in from space. Mm. And the, the most common type of what we're discussing is called a meteor. So these are these can vary a lot in size. So from um, you know tens of centimeters up yeah. to almost kilometers in size. If they're getting much larger than that. They're generally referred to as an asteroid, mm. which and they can have different rocks and like different makeup of what mm. they are. And but what they all are are leftovers from the early stages of our solar system. Yeah, they're failed planets. Mm. Um, so mostly metallic rocks. Yeah. Um, they f- fall through our atmosphere, and as they fall through, they hit. They're moving very, very fast, and their outer layers get really hot as mm. they go through, and they light up and glow. Mm. So that's what can often give them an orange tinge in their appearance as they're falling through the atmosphere. Mm. Of course, you can get rather large events happening. Yeah, where like like we saw in Russia, yes, and all those dash cam footage. Um, or, mm. Was that in twenty twelve? I can't oh. remember the exact... It was, yes, I can't remember either. Yeah. But it, they had, like, two that kind of happened in a, a shortish space of time, yeah. didn't they? they? They got hit quite quite bad with that. And then, of course, we have our old friends, the dinosaurs. Yeah, so the dinosaurs were mostly most likely wiped out by a large... and We think it actually was a comet in this case. Um, well, oh, well, oh. well, well, well. <laughs> um, the impact site... They're mm. actually drilling to try and find remains. Yeah. So. Oh, so to to be determined. To be determined, but the the ideas that I've heard floated around is that uh, the asteroid impacted on the ground um, and threw up an enormous amount of debris, like yeah. larger than any super volcano you could ever think of. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, this this impact site is actually in um, the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, on the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, and so you can actually make a view. On Google Earth, for example, mm. um, they have the seabed images built into Google Earth now, mm. and you can actually make out some of the structure of this yeah. um, asteroid meteor slash comet. Yeah, because there were there were shock waves that kind of rippled out from the uh, impact site, 
And uh, a lot of places in Central America have like these underwater, or sorry, underground water systems, which seem to follow a, a circular pattern centered on what we believe to be the impact site. Yeah. Um, so, well, we brought up comets. Mm. So how can we tell the difference between a comet and some other object flying around our solar system? It all comes down to the tail. Yeah, the beautiful tail. Yes. So the tail is... Uh, so comets are made out of mostly ice and uh, well, ice, which might be water ice or it might be gaseous ice, yeah. or what we'd be familiar with gas, frozen into ice form. Uh, and they, they have very long orbits around the sun. And we mm. believe they uh, or originate from uh, the Oort cloud. So it's a, a whole shell of icy material that's left over from the formation of the solar system quite far away from us. Yeah, so they're kind of the failed outer planets, the, yeah. the ice and gas giants. Yeah. That, the bits left over from that that didn't get sucked up into the planets that we know and love. Mm. And dwarf planets that we love even more because they have beautiful hearts on them. Get off it. Pluto sucks. <laughs> that, that, Sorry, Pluto. That's, that's subjective. So, yeah. okay, I'll throw you something closer, closer to home for you. Yeah. Now, this would require quite a good knowledge of the thousands of stars you can see with just your eyes. Excuse me? You think <laughs> I'm going to get this? Ah. Uh, but what if you noticed a new star appear? Ooh. Yeah. See, I knew you got excited by this. Yes. What 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 could be going on there? A new dot? Is that is this an mm. alien civilization shining a light? It could well be. <laughs> or it could be something rather explosive going on. Oh, do, now, the reason why I, I've excited Ryan with this is, of course, this is actually his research topic. Yeah. So fill us in. What, what could this be? Well, it could be some kind of star dying. And death is very interesting in the case of stars. So there can be nova, mm. killer nova, as has been found in recent years, and supernova. Do, do, do. Yeah, and there's supernova complicated. So we may, well, we'll talk about the two different types of supernova. Uh, nova yeah. are in the case of where you have a white dwarf star, and material starts. It's in a binary star system, so there's two stars in the same place. You have a white dwarf star and a companion star, and that companion starts feeding material onto the white dwarf. Um, and the material that's getting fed on eventually gets so dense that it can ignite. Uh, a brief flash of fusion can occur, and it makes the, the nova or the white dwarf... Uh, well, it's not really the white dwarf in this case. The stuff around the white dwarf explodes, and it becomes super luminous, or much more luminous than what it was. Yeah. And you can you can spot them in the night sky. Yeah. A few so, years ago, sorry, I just need to say this. A few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, he was an amateur astronomer, and he, he uh, found the spectra uh, for a nova that happened quite recently. Oh, wow. So that was pretty cool. He ended up on a scientific um, announcement for huh. that. So... Um, I'll fill in the gaps, a couple of things that you went through there. Oh, yes, I zoomed through too quick. Yeah, so Ryan gets very excited about... Explosions. About ex them explosions. Uh, um, so what's a white dwarf? That's yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to start yes. off with. So a white dwarf is the leftover kind of hot but dead heart of mm. a regular star, like our sun. So It's mostly made out of carbon and oxygen. Yeah, so it's the core that's left over from a... Like, a air quotes here, a regular type star, what mm. we call main sequence, but stars like our sun. Once Small they, ones. Yeah. Once they run out of gas, 
they end up and they can't do they can't do fusion anymore because mm. they're not they all their gas usually floats away because they can't hold on anymore and they just can't fuse their hydrogen and other things they don't have enough pressure mm. to make their fusion reactions happen which is how they shine and they don't have enough mass to fuse the carbon and oxygen into heavier elements yeah so what's left behind is this mostly carbon core mm. but it's very it's still incredibly hot Mm. So it's and very dense. So you have this dense, hot, kind of glowing ember of a star that's left behind. Mm. Um, now, of course, these end up becoming, as you as you said, for a nova, hotbeds for a lot of different type of reactions because yeah. they still have a lot of mass and mm. they have energy associated with them. So they're mm. still very hot. So, as, like you said, when things fall onto them, like if they have a companion, yeah. then interesting things can start to go on. Yes. So I, I described the less interesting case, yeah. the Nova, which in its own right is interesting because it tells you that there's a binary star system there, yeah. which is cool. Uh, but the more interesting case is the supernova, where you get uh, in so much material uh, falling onto the white dwarf, you pass something called the Chandra Seca limit. And that means, well... It means stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Or it's not really Chandrasekhar limit. It's more uh, the Chandrasekhar density. If if a patch of the white dwarf gets heavier than this magical number, uh, fusion will ignite and you'll get uh, lots of burning happening in mm. this thing. And it will blow up quite vigorously. Uh, so much so that uh, they're extremely bright. On an astronomy magnitude scale... Um, they're usually at a magnitude of minus 19. And our sun, which is super, super bright, our sun is a magnitude of 5. Yeah, so and each mag- magnitudes are really confusing. Yeah, so, it's backwards. Yeah, so in this case, so the more negative it is, mm-hmm. the brighter it is. Yes. So as in so minus 100 is far, far brighter than minus 50. Yes. Um, and then if you, it goes into positive too, but mm. then it gets weaker. So plus 100 is weaker than zero. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a strange scale. Yeah, it's, that's, it's confusing. It's used to classify different types of bright but it's, things. It's vaguely a logarithmic scale. There, I say vaguely because there is some scaling factors there. But you can imagine it as... Uh, so, a number yeah, so our sun's five, did you say? So What's that? What's our yeah, our sun's yeah. around about five. Okay. So if we count how, how many uh, number spaces, integer spaces, there are between five and minus 19, that's... Uh, 24. 24, very good. Very fast with your mathematics there. I paid attention in maths. <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, so that's 10 to the power of... Uh, 24 times effectively. Yeah. So that's, oh, is that right? That seems far too bright. We're talking, of course, about um, uh, absolute magnitude here, yeah. where this is how bright something would appear at 10 parsecs away. Yeah. From so, us. yeah. So, of course, brightness changes on how far away yeah. you put something. So, if you want, if it, you have to be careful when you say how bright something is. So, usually we call, we have this thing called um, absolute magnitude, mm. which is if we stick a star the same distance away every time, yeah. how bright would it be? Obviously, if it's right up in your face, then it's going to be far, far brighter so than our it's very sun, far away. To give you a sense of the, the scale, our sun is uh, an apparent magnitude, so mm. how bright it appears to us at the distance away it is, is about minus 26. Yeah. So that's a lot brighter than the absolute magnitude of a Type 1a supernova, this thing where the white dwarf blows up. Yeah. Uh, but it's still 
you know, it's 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 only because it's close to us. Yeah. So lots of things can go bang. There's different ways of having supernova and kilonova and mm. maybe even hypernova and all that kind of stuff. Ooh, so yes. think, think stars go pop and they get they go very very bright. Yeah. And so stars that you might not be able to see other with your with your just your eyes yeah. like a white dwarf are often very dim so you, mm. relative to especially relative to the companion stars that they usually have. So you often won't be able to see them. Mm. You know, you can, with your eyes, you can only see the few thousand or so closest stars to our sun. Yeah. You can see maybe about a million or so if you're using a good telescope. Mm. But you know, still relatively low numbers. Yes. Um, but yes. when they go bang and go pop, then they appear far, far brighter. Yes. And they can all of a sudden appear, um, and they can tell us a lot of interesting things about the what's going on mm. um, around them. The, if they're in our own galaxy and mm. kind of nearby, you'll be able to see them through the day. And I, I can't remember when the last one was observed. I think it was in... Oh, there's there's a very famous one in uh, ancient China, but there was yeah. another one which was vaguely visible to the unaided eye in the 70s or so. I yeah. think I can't I'm quite <laughs> I do have my fingers crossed for a visible one in our yes, lifetime. it would be pretty good. Yeah. So there have been a number of um, both day and night visible supernovae throughout mm. history um, being recorded by... Um, so during the Middle Ages, China were far better at recording mm. um, astronomical goings They were more stable Europe. at the time also. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... Across the world, they've been recorded throughout mm. history, so it's quite quite incredible. So we have a number of things that can change in the sky, yeah. and they we're still learning a lot from them. You mm. know, some things are quite mundane, things that we know about. Some things are quite extreme, like stars exploding, um, and we're still learning stuff from them. Yep. But what seems to be the common thread is that we do a lot of observing. We have things like SkyMapper taking photos of the sky every night. Yep. Um, we have other things that are specifically looking for aliens now. And we'll talk about them later. Ooh. And we'll get into that. So I don't want to jump ahead too far. Mm-hmm. But what we have a problem is, is that we still haven't had, you know, at least a well-documented mm. visit from aliens or direct evidence. Some people might claim otherwise, yes. but we still don't have... What about the Venusians? <laughs> There are various claims throughout history <laughs> and even modern times. Yeah. Um, and we'll go into the, some of those. But in terms of what we have well-documented evidence mm. for, w- there seems to be a lack. There seems to be radio silence on light, you know, general lack yeah. of contact. Yeah. Starring Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. <laughs> um, the not, book was better. <laughs> um, we'll ignore that for now. We haven't, we haven't had any signs. Mm. So, and this was what the, about crop circles? <laughs> we'll, we'll ignore those for now. All right, we'll get sure. into those. So, ignoring those kinds of things, um, it got people thinking. So, this is when people first started seriously thinking about this. It was about in the 1950s, mm. um, and it was it was at what was called the the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Okay, so that's um, it was a secret facility at the time. It's mm. where the Americans were first developing the atomic bomb as mm. this where the Manhattan project happened. Mm. And so a lot of physicists who, if you study physics, you'll end up hearing their names. People like Enrico Fermi worked. Mm. Um, and it turned out there's a, a lunchtime conversation between a bunch of these guys. And Fermi famously posed the questions, mm. posed the question, where are all the aliens? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a common argument for most 
astronomers and physicists, once you start to get a handle on the numbers that we're dealing with, mm. as in the numbers of stars, even just within our own galaxy. Yeah. So stuff within our own galaxy is kind of, if there were aliens out there, mm. they're the closest and so they're the most likely to come knocking. Yes. Um, so the argument went, this is um, according to, um, I'll try to remember his name. Where was it? One of it is documented by Tell, Edward Teller, who's one of the guys present at this lunchtime okay. conversation. So the argument roughly went that there are billions of stars in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. In fact, we now know there's hundreds of billions of stars yeah. in our galaxy. Um, and they're quite similar to the sun, and some of which are much older than mm. our sun. Um, we know now, in fact, we know now a lot better than actually pretty much all these, all the stars in our galaxy mm. most likely have planets. Yeah. Um, so they argued at the time that it was likely that there'd be a lot of Earth-like planets. Yeah, because around only in the last like twenty years that we've yeah. really uncovered how populous yeah, so the galaxy a, is with planets. Yeah, so this problem, this is actually um, more of a problem now that we have evidence for lots of planets. But mm. back then, they they reasoned that it was likely, and they were, it turns out they were right. There actually mm. are a lot of planets, and even a lot of rocky Earth-like planets that mm. are around. Um, oh, I mean, last year, what was it, like seven or eight found announced? Because there's yeah. the one around Proxima Centauri, then I think there was seven Trappist planets, right? Yeah, so there's a, there's more and more coming all the time mm. from, you know, new exoplanets. There's active searches now looking yeah. for exoplanets. So um, they then argue that amongst all there's enough planets then that's one or more mm. may develop intelligent life like the Earth has. Yeah. Um, and that some of these civilizations, given enough time that mm-hmm. these planets have been around for in our galaxy, have des- would have developed the ability to travel around the galaxy. Yeah. And that the galaxy is small enough relative on the relative time scale that we should have been visited by now. Right. Okay. So it's called the Fermi paradox, mm. which is there is a high likelihood that there are within a million years mm-hmm. aliens could have traveled throughout the whole galaxy. An yeah. intelligent civilization, yeah, and so the universe it's, itself is about is nearly fourteen billion years old. The planets and those those kind of the oldest planets I think are on the order of tens of billion, ten billion years old mm. or so within our galaxy. So that's more than enough time for some civilizations to have developed and maybe reached us. So yeah. the question is, where are all the aliens? Yes, that's a very good question. I mean, and, and we'll get into this. Some people have claimed that, that there isn't a paradox because they have visited us. Yes, they're abducting cows as we speak. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, this kind of started a conversation mm. um, amongst a lot of astronomers in the time in the 50s and yep. coming into the 60s. And so people decided to get a bit more serious about this. Okay. And, okay, we have this Fermi paradox about where are all the aliens? Mm. How about we go about seriously trying to answer this question? Right. How how about we go about actively searching? Yes. So this started what was called now called SETI. Okay. So that's S E T I, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So, okay. So this is. So mm. I'll just cut you off right now. Yeah. Because I'm sure you want to say this. How so? In the Fermi's equation. Mm. Uh, sorry, is that the right? No, I'm, no. I'm drawing you're, a mind you're, blank. You're, you're jumping no. ahead. I'll get to that. Okay, all right. You're jumping ahead. Don't. All right. <laughs> yeah. So this is when people started to get serious about this. Yeah. And conversations started to spark up about, okay, how can we actually put some maths and science okay, into this? Yeah. 
So scientists, well, scientists, they started to propose ways to search for them, started to propose ways to look for it. And at the same time, people started to think, okay, how about we put some maths into yeah. the likelihood of aliens okay, rather than just yeah. kind of hand-waving a bit more like a lunchtime hand-wave conversation. Yeah. So amongst the people who were involved in starting what's called now called SETI mm. was a guy by the name of Frank Drake. Mm. Not to be confused with, confused oh, yes, with Sir course. Francis Drake yes. of uh, historical fame and also video game fame. <laughs> so, Fra- so Frank Drake came up with what's now called the Drake Equation. Yes, which is what I was confusing myself with earlier. Yes, yes. so the Drake Equation and the Fermi Paradox are basically about the same thing. But the Drake Equation is a way of saying it's an equation which is actually relatively simple. So it's just N equals and then a bunch of terms. Mm -hmm. N is the number of intelligent civilizations Mm -hmm. um, that um, are in our galaxy. Yep. And it should be producing detectable um, emissions in the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's they're basically the, the intelligent enough to be making light yep. that we can detect here on Earth. Okay. So of course, astronomers were biased towards picking up things with light because that's the only thing that we actually really do. Mm. So we do we pick up light and then we do physics with that light that mm. we receive. And so they wanted to try and do this. Okay well, how much light would be coming from aliens if they're around? Yeah. So it's just a number of terms that just get multiplied together. They have a bunch of different names, mm. but each one is a probability mm. or a rate of things happening in our galaxy. Um, and you multiply them together well, to get Not each one of them. So you start off with the number of stars. You start stars. off with a number of stars and then you go down. Yeah. Um, so you have a number of rates and probabilities and then it give, finally gives mm. you a number. So these are the different parts to it. So you have what's called R star. So the rate of stars that form in our galaxy that whose conditions will allow mm. um, intelligent life to form. So we can't... We think it's unlikely that really um, young or really, sorry, large, violent, hot stars mm. uh, will be good for life. They produce, say... They, we're going about life that we know, yeah. so we are biased here. So there's a lot of caveats to this equation. There's been a lot of criticisms to this equation too, mm. I'll say, but we'll just go through it so that hot, bright, hot young, bright stars will, will die too early mm. so they won't live long enough and they'll produce too much yucky things like ultraviolet yeah. that will kill early forms of life that, that we know. Mm. Um, then there's FP. So that's the fraction of those stars um, that form a planet that form planets which so, is effectively one now yeah we're now no so some of these numbers are known some are not mm. so some of them we're saying to know now relatively well and some not so much yeah and then we have so now the fp so the number of stars with planets is basically one or 100 percent. yeah so then the next uh the next thing is there is a fraction so so the, the next part is the also, there's a number. So this isn't one of the number parts. So it's mm. the number of planets per solar system with yeah. an environment suitable for life. Mm. So that's a very difficult thing to answer. Yes. So this is where a lot of the debate arises around this, as in what determines a suitability for life. Yeah. Um, so far, all we can go on is what's suitable for life as we know it. Of course there's probably lots of other types of life that might be possible that we just don't know about. Yeah, well, 
uh, astrobiology has become mm. quite a big field, and part of that field has been going and finding things called extremophiles. Yeah. Uh, bacteria or life that lives in very extreme conditions, which we would have thought life classically couldn't have survived in. Yeah, so there are organisms, say, for the example, of um, water bears, little, yeah. little six-legged water bear guys. Throw them in space. They've been thrown into space for hours mm. and then brought back into the International Space Station, and they've survived. Yeah. And so there are a number of different microscopic organisms which can survive in places we thought were impossible. So that number's hard to determine. Mm. Like, what is this environment suitable for life? Not sure yet. Yeah. Then you have the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears. So, of course, you could have mm. another number of planets that life could form. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it will. So how many of those planets yeah. will get life? This comes into biogenesis, I guess. We just yeah. don't know how life begins. Yeah, so... Um, and then we have of those planets which get life, mm. how many of them then develop intelligent life? Yes, and how is intelligence defined here? Yeah, again, um, the fraction of civilization, then the next term is the fraction of civilizations that develop technology that emit detectable signs. So okay. the number of civilizations that are smart and then go on to make light, so both in the form of radio and detectable light that we can mm. measure with telescopes. And then you have finally L. So the length of time such civilizations have been releasing that, mm. releasing those signals. And we're currently conducting an experiment, a global experiment to find out what L is. Yeah. <laughs> How long will we last? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really good point in that we've act we're actually part of where we meet those criteria. We mm. are releasing signals. So here's a quiz question for you. Mm. In terms of what was the ignoring... Opti so I'm obviously favoured in terms of radio, yes. being a radio astronomer. Yeah. Um, and radio light is the easiest to make really bright because mm. so, each photon has the lowest amounts of energy. Mm. So you can release lots of photons because they're really yeah. low energy. So which one was the... I hate to say it, the radio loudest. So the, uh, more, which one was the radio brightest signal? The first signal that we made as a collective species that was that escaped our planet and headed off into space. Well, I believe it was the Olympic opening ceremony mm -hmm. uh, that Germany held. Yep. Uh, opened by a certain Adolf Hitler. Yep. Uh, young Adolf Hitler is the first thing if they can, if aliens know how to decode, um, I think I'm guessing AM or FM band, mm -hmm. They will hear Adolf Hitler first out of all signals that yes. emitted from Earth. So that kind of played into the, the contact. You meant the, mm. the book Contact that Carl yeah. Sagan wrote. Is, uh, they got a broadcast from aliens yeah. and they decoded the message coming from the aliens and it was Adolf Hitler. And they're like, oh, God, <laughs> this isn't good. So they sent, they sent Adolf back. Yes, of course. <laughs> they didn't warn him. It, it, it's, it's a really great movie, by the way. I, I liked it. No, yeah. the book's better. Of course, the book is always better, but... If you don't both either read the book, watch the movie, do both, but the, mm. it kind of plays into these sort of things. So now with this equation, we have a way to quantify, not necessarily easily, but there is a way to quantify how many um, civilizations we should be detecting. Mm. Now, obviously, a lot of these numbers have had to be estimated because yeah. we just don't know them. Um, so that what that means is that we've had numbers varying in the thousands, so mm. thousands of civilizations to some people coming out with numbers less than one. So yeah. there shouldn't be any. So there's still a lot of debate around this. Mm. But what that created then was 
people who were getting numbers larger than one were going, mm. okay, we should need to have ways to be trying to listen out yes. or rather look out for signals coming mm. in from intelligent species. And that's what SETI became. Yeah. Um, it's a push, especially using radio telescopes. Mm. Um, so a push using... Um, the various radio telescopes that were available at the time. Yeah. So like the um, 25 meter dish, which is at Green Bank. So Green Bank is at the what's called the National Radio Quiet Zone in the United States. Mm. So that's a, a an area of the US where emitting radio signals is actually against the law, and mm. they have like radio police that go around. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. They have like a radio detector car. And they will find anyone who's emitting radio signals. So the town of Green Bank is known as like the town without Wi-Fi, and you know it attracts people who claim to be electromagnetic sensitive because there's no Wi-Fi, no phone signals, yeah. um, and then now also houses the the world's largest steerable single dish. So mm. it's a Green Bank telescope. It's 101 meters across, mm. um, but I don't think that had been built yet at the time. So they proposed using, you know, the 25 meter dish and mm. you know a bunch of other dishes to try and search for signals that were coming in yeah. from alien species, and that's still ongoing today. Yeah. And there's been some new developments, which we'll, I guess, we'll talk about. In a well, bit. Uh, well, I forget his last name, but. Uh, one of the, the directors of SETI, mm. uh, Seth, uh, Seth Shostak, sorry. Um, he, I met him a few years ago. Oh, and, really? Yeah, and every, he's a really cool guy to talk to, but every talk he gives, he'll, he'll of course, talk about SETI and the efforts they're trying to do, and then he'll say, uh, he'll bet everyone that, uh, that he'll bet everyone a cup of coffee uh, if, or that, uh, we will find extraterrestrial signals within the next 20 years. Hmm. Uh, of course, querying him after one of his talks as to did he mean one coffee for everyone or a coffee <laughs> per person, he was rather ambiguous as to the answer there. Um, but it, it is it brings out this thing that people who are working on this, of course, they'll be positive about their project. Yeah. But they know the project. So, you know, if if they yeah. think it's possible, then perhaps it is. So, yeah. But, you know, so SETI is now a very long ongoing organization mm. with a lot of different scientists who've come in and out of this field, mm. um, especially in radio astronomy. Um, so it's an active area of research, um, although still so far we haven't detected mm. anything Um now there's been recent efforts, but we'll talk about that in a sec. So let's let's go back to where we're at, where at the start to the mm. Fermi paradox. Where are all the aliens? Yeah. So now let's have a discussion of what if they have been here? Mm. What signs do we have that people that we on Earth have already been visited by extraterrestrials? People, so intelligent species from yeah. other planets. Well, you just go to your your most scientifically scientifically accurate channel on TV, the History Channel. <laughs> Yes, Fire it up and start watching an episode of Ancient Aliens. <laughs> Ancient Aliens is quite, quite fascinating. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a really great documentary on YouTube. It's about three hours long, though. <laughs> um, and he, it's a counter to all the claims of Ancient Aliens. And I thoroughly recommend watching it because we don't have enough time to go through all the detail that no, he does. There's how many seasons are there there's, after There's now? a lot. Um, but essentially... They're, a lot of the claims that they make in that show are either factually incorrect, overblown, or intentionally missing um, yes. pieces of information. There was one episode I watched I have fond memories of uh, because quite often what they do is they like to look at the positions of various uh, historical sites yeah. on the Earth. So they, they found one 
historical site, and then they found another one. Must have been a pyramid or oh, something. Oh, I should say. So, if you're unaware of ancient aliens, this is a show that claims that aliens oh, visited true. us in the distant past and helped humans build incredible structures and influenced society and art and all the rest of that. Yes. Um, so, sorry. Yes, yes. The pyramids. Um, so they had two points on the globe, and then they drew a circle, like a, a great circle, which yeah. uh, went around the globe. And that was evidence for... Uh, oh, between like the pyramids in Egypt and say the Mayan pyramids, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And, you know, you can draw circles around everything and it will make a great circle which yeah. will encompass the centre of the earth if you construct it such. So yeah. I just found that highly amusing at the yeah. time. And I, so the, the documentary is like this, it's just a YouTuber that's made. Um, it's really good because what I found it far more interesting because mm. in he goes through a lot of the actual methods that ancient people used to construct yeah. a lot of these ancient um, buildings and that kind of thing. And the ways in which they did it is actually really quite fascinating. Yeah. So, and that kind of, that study is actually really quite, uh, we're not experts in, but it's, I find it really interesting that mm. um, the ways in which ancient peoples were able to accomplish incredible tasks yes. with the technology at the time. Because a, a favorite uh, case example with ancient alien people is like Machu Picchu and those kinds of places where the stones seem to fit perfectly with one another. Yeah. How could that have been done with a stone chisel? So there are explanations for these things without resorting to aliens. And not just explanations, but evidence as well. We have evidence of the tools and that kind of thing. So let's ignore the ancient Mm. aliens for now. Mm. Um, Let's go into the modern era. Yeah. In that there's been a lot of claims of people being visited by aliens, mm. abducted by aliens, mm. having their their crops flattened by alien spaceships. Getting dang circled on right there. Yeah. So um, there's one thing that I'd, I'd like to touch on because it's actually it's something that's personally relevant to me in yeah. being visited by aliens. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. No, well, let, <laughs> I will, yeah, I will explain where I'm going with this. Trust right. me. Uh, a common theme that I think that I am aware of, which mm. is something that um, it took a while before actually I saw it in like a, a counter documentary. And I was like, yeah. yes, this is, I've thought about this for a while. Mm. So if you listen to the accounts of people being visited by aliens, mm. you'll hear a common thread quite often. Yes. They'll be pinned in their bed. As mm. often they'll be visited at, at night in yes. bed. Um, and then they'll feel like they'll be weighed down by some force. The alien will be present and will be weighing them down. Yeah. Um, and then often then weird things happen to them. So yeah. either they'll, the person will undergo some sort of weird sexual experience with this alien. Something, you know, people have weird, weird things like that. Or, yeah. you know, the alien will scare them or the alien will take them away. On know, a magical adventure. On a magical adventure. So all sorts of things happen, but this common thread of being pinned down in your bed with the alien in your room. Yeah. And what that turns out to be is actually a relatively common experience for a lot of people, myself right. included. Right. And it's a condition called sleep paralysis. Mm. And it's actually, I had this as a kid quite a lot. Right. Um, and it's uh, the best way I can describe it. It's, it's like the opposite to sleepwalking. So okay. when, you, when you sleep, you're, you are paralyzed. Um, so, because when you dream, um, a lot of things are going on in your brain. Yeah. Um, and that what happens with sleepwalking is that the paralysis effect is disabled. Yeah. And so you're able to move around during your dream, doing REM, the rapid eye movements when you have, have, all, your, have all your dreams. Yeah. Particular cycle of your sleep. And that's when things can kind of go weird and you can walk around mm. if you're not paralyzed. Yeah. Now, the opposite can happen where you'll still be paralyzed, but you'll come awake. Okay. 
And during this time, you're like, you'll be relatively conscious, mm. um, but you'll feel pinned down on your bed because you won't right. be able to move. And along with that, because you're sort of in a weird state of being, things aren't quite going quite right with yeah. the way you're sleeping, you can um, hallucinate. Right. And often that will manifest itself as a presence in your room, in your mm. bedroom. Um, it'll often feel quite threatening. Mm. Um, and this has actually occurred, there's documentation of this all throughout history. Yeah. And it's very much what, how that thing manifests to you depends a lot on your culture. Mm. So in the Middle Ages in Europe, it was often a demon that was tormenting people. Right. In parts of Asia, it was various other creatures that would come and visit them or various gods, you know, okay. depending on where you are. Yeah. Um, and in modern America, it's become aliens mm. since the 1960s, since kind of SETI became, because well, SETI drum up a lot of its own popularity yes, to try well, and get funding. Want, yes, They're like, we're searching for aliens. Hey, come, mm. please give us money. And so it, it entered the public psyche, particularly in America, because that's when a lot of the big radio telescopes were. Yeah. So that's where they were trying to get funding. And then I guess you get the common image was being spread around the media so then people yeah. start imagining that it, thing yeah it entered popular culture through science fiction literature and yeah. movies um, it's when sci-fi yeah sci-fi films were starting to be made it became very popular mm. in the 60s and that's when a lot of people started to have experiences of being abducted at the yeah. same time um, so uh, my I guess my kind of a bit of advice when you hear abduction stories is kind of listen out for that common experience mm. that a lot of people claim to have yeah and then often a lot of times it can be something like sleep paralysis right yeah because yeah. i find that quite interesting because i recognize that experience yeah hearing the stories i was like wait aren't they just having sleep paralysis mm. um and yeah it can be quite a scary thing and quite a yeah certainly um thankfully yeah it hasn't happened to me in a while it's just yeah weird thing happening when i was a kid um but so there are other things that people claim so you mentioned before crop circles oh so yeah. Tell me, Ryan, why, how could an alien spaceship squish, squish, you, squish your cone? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, from, from what I've read, it's not necessarily just alien spaceships coming down mm. and squishing it for some reason. <laughs> uh, some people claim, all right, it's not spaceships, but it's interdimensional aliens that are trying to communicate with us by, yeah. like, scribbling stuff in the crops. Oh, okay. That's a different one. Yeah. And and if you if you look at the crop circles in a certain way, uh, they, they convey some kind of geometric shapes to them. Like, yeah. it might be a three-dimensional object compressed down to two dimensions. I see. And another really interesting thing that I've heard is that um, the electric fields that you can mm. measure in the cro in the circle will be different from outside. Yes, I've heard that as well. Yeah. So can you think, if it weren't aliens, could you have an explanation for a change in an electric field between a, inside a crop circle and out? Big old electromagnet. No, that's <laughs> it's not a it's not a good answer. Well, um, that's a good question. I yeah. think you have the answer. I. Uh, I think I might. So you might remember back from high school physics that charge often collects at a point. Mm. So, for example, if you've ever played with a Van de Graaff generator, mm. or, you know, if you build up a lot of static electricity so you can scuff your feet on a carpet and you want to zap someone, you'll poke them with your finger and you get a little bzzz. Right. It's because charge likes to collect at points. Yeah. And in a field, so often fields can have actually quite strong electric fields. Mm. Uh, like, sorry, a field of 
corn or wheat or whatever. Yeah. Because you've got a, basically a whole feet, lot of like lightning rods all next to each other. Oh, I see. So uh, well, again, it's another example. Lightning rods, a nice point that the charge wants to collect on yeah. and stops the whole building from being damaged. Yeah. It collects the charge on that point. Similarly, in a field, the charge tends to collect at the at the end of mm. the you know of your corn or your wheat or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if you flatten all those standing rows of crops right. down, it'll change that electric field that has been set up. Yeah. Now, additionally, we have evidence of there are people, there are groups who will go around mm. and they actively make crop well, circles. Wasn't the first like big documented crop circle didn't? Didn't some people come out as being like yeah. the ones that did it and like explained how they actually created the circle? Yeah. So and people can make them quite fast now. You can get like a you basically use a plank, and so you can flatten a whole bunch of crops all at once. Mm. Um, and there's also evidence that the crop circles have gotten more compli- complex over yeah. time, um, and have, and more groups have also come out and claimed that they've done that. Or you could. It, it's easier now, I guess, to make a more complex crop circle design because yeah. imagine you could just fly a drone overhead of you and yeah. then you have a bird's eye view of what a helicopter or a plane or whatever will yeah. see. So, I mean, we're coming down to, I guess, an argument we've had before or argument that we've made before, which is that of Occam's razor, mm. which is what's more likely, mm. as in which makes fewer assumptions. We know we have evidence people that can, people can make and have made crop mm. circles. They've, been, they've faked it. Now, is it likely that a given crop circle that you find, yeah. is it a hoax from people who've made it? Mm. Or is it a spaceship or interdimensional creatures trying to communicate? Yes, I, I favour the interdimensional creatures, obviously. Yes, but unfortunately Occam doesn't. No, in this case, it cuts the other way. So, of course, you, first we need evidence some, that interdimensional aliens exist before you can yes. attribute them to act, certain activities. That's true. Um, which is yeah, I guess a more urban example we could say yeah is like random tagging that appears on buildings. Yeah, no one goes around and says ah, an alien did that. Yeah, <laughs> a, a rough gang of aliens from Alpha Centauri have come along and started claiming the neighborhood. No one says that, and it's, no. it's kind of like the equivalent of tagging fields. Yeah, it's. So I think that one can be re- dismissed with relative ease. Yeah. Oh, um, I feel comfortable in a BS assignment there. Yeah. Um, and then similarly, we discussed a lot of the strange, thing, strange things you can see in the sky. Now, of course, there are some things that you might see mm. that you can't explain. That we know, Oh, that's a strange object. We don't know what that is. You can check flight paths. So, and I it's have not a plane. I have, a, uh, I have something that happened to me. Oh. <gasps> Ryan has an experience. I have an experience. Do share. So I grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand. Unlucky for you, I suppose. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Dirty Australian. Uh, Tasmanian as well, to make it worse. Uh, so, <laughs> so one thing... Uh, so Google has been running this Project Loon for quite some time. And they've been experimenting with how to control high-altitude balloons by moving them around in the air currents. Yeah, so they're doing that because they want to broadcast Wi-Fi everywhere, and right? And kill radio and telescopes. And yeah, destroy all radio telescopes. Yes. So a good place to test these things would be over the Southern Ocean because there's no yeah. land masses beneath yeah. it. So what they used to do was launch 
these loons, a whole heap of them at a given time, yeah. like five or so. And they're big too. They're, they're enormous. Yeah. They launch them from like the central South Island, which is, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away from me, we'll say. Yeah. And one day, uh, me and my brother were outside and we see these white orbs in the sky just <laughs> going about the place like, what? What is this? So, of course, we're confused because for some reason, um, they didn't announce it publicly that these things were being launched. So the entire South Island <laughs> started reporting uh, UFOs to the police and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Of course, it, uh, so what my brother and I actually did, being the scientists we are, we got our telescope and we managed to point our telescope at this UFO <laughs> and we found that it had some prominent ridges around it and looked quite balloon-shaped. Yeah. So we, we felt quite comfortable that we weren't being invaded. In fact, it was a balloon. Yeah. So we saw something we didn't understand yeah. and we investigated it like a good scientist should. <laughs> so it's a, actually a, it's a relatively common thing for companies to be launching new types of aircraft. Mm. As, you know, Facebook wants to cover the world with Wi-Fi with planes, with space mm. planes. Um, that shoot lasers. That shoot lasers. It's all a bit scary, but sci-fi. Google's <laughs> launching weird and they're enormous kind of they do yeah. look very UFO-esque yes not to mention the militaries of the world mm. um, who definitely won't tell you what they're flying mm. will be testing new types and of aircraft and will perhaps even uh, fan the flames of some conspiracy theories like perhaps Area 51 yeah so Area 51 of course is a famous site especially because it was active during the 60s and 70s mm. as a um, test facility for new types of aircraft mm. by the United States um, and this is all around the same time that aliens were entering the, the public psyche mm. um, and so it ended up you know being a site of quite a number of conspiracies around yeah. um, UFO sightings and that kind of thing. And it's quite likely mm. that a number of things that were sighted there that were genuinely UFOs, so unidentified flying objects. Yeah. Um, now, of course, old mate Occam comes cutting again <laughs> in that we know, even though we know we don't know, we, we know that militaries of the world have aircraft and test things that yeah. we're not told about. Mm. We know that companies like Google launch weird balloon type objects. Yeah. Um, we know those things happen. Mm. So if you see a weird thing in the sky, what are your conclusions going to be? Which way will, which way will Occam's razor cut? Will it cut towards thing, the type of object that we know exists mm. or aliens coming to visit, which has never been documented before? And would be really hard to do. Yeah. So, of course, you cut towards us being the, the, the source of it. Yeah. But something which often gets brushed under the rug is, like, the effort these aliens would need to go to to come and visit us because space is enormous. Yeah. So they've, they've traveled many tens of light years, most likely, yeah. to reach us, which either they travel fast and speed light and it's not a problem, which in itself is a sketchy and possibly not true yeah. or not uh, possible. Um, or they took many hundreds of years to reach us. Yeah. And they took all those hundreds of years to reach us and just kind of sit around and... Float around in the sky and spook some people. Yeah, abduct a cow and flatten the crop. Good to go. Let's go home, yeah, boys. It's a bit. bit <laughs> we, we've collected that information. <laughs> time, time to roll out. Yeah, it, it does strike you strike as very peculiar. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange thing to think about. Yeah, I I would wish 
that it were true and that yeah. there were aliens around because I think that would be remarkable. It would be incredible. Yeah, it would be, well, we're talking about the, what would be one of the most important discoveries yes. in human history. You probably wouldn't even be able to fathom how culture would change from such yeah. a discovery. So that's another point. If you say scientists are trying to cover up the discovery <laughs> of aliens, think of it like this. Uh, if you're the scientist who has information that aliens truly exist and you could prove it just by releasing your information, you would become world famous yeah. you'd be, as the person who found that we weren't yeah. alone in the universe. Yeah. You'd, be like, one of the, you'd be arguably the most famous person in human yeah, history. Yes, forget Einstein. You yeah. showed we weren't alone and perhaps yeah. those aliens have an understanding of gravity which discredits yeah. everything else we know, right? So... Mm. You know, ask yourself that question. What would you do? Of course you would tell the public because there's a selfish motive. Then there's also the, the I guess, the generous motive of the people deserve to know. Yeah. So th- there's two other quick things I want to touch on before mm. we talk about the modern um, efforts to try and find aliens. Yeah. Um, two, so re- both related to kind of UFO sightings. Yeah. One is that the plural of anecdotes is not data. Yes. <laughs> and that, in fact, that's the whole point. That's why we do science and the way in which we do science mm. is to avoid the fact that people are bad. Yes. As in bad at stuff, bad mm. at doing stuff, we forget. Our memories can be distorted and changed. Quite easily. Quite very, very easily. So even, even an honest person can be very wrong. Mm. And then, of course, there are dishonest people out there mm. who make stuff up. Um, so even if someone very trustworthy told you something... Mm. It's in you know, even the most trustworthy person you know can hallucinate. Yes, it's enti- and we know people hallucinate. So again, it comes down to Occam's razor. We know people lie. We know people hallucinate. Mm. So again, people's experience can be wrong. Yes. Your experience isn't necessarily reality mm. all the time. Um, so that's one thing to bear. Another thing to bear in mind. Mm. And then of course, I mean, it comes down to video footage, which mm. of, which is in itself again not infallible. We live in an age of um, very advanced computer graphics yes. where it's available to for free quite a lot of the time. Yeah. And even very you know amateur people can do can get amazing results, and then let alone professionals. Yeah. So again, doctoring footage is something that's incredibly easy to do yeah. and can create very um, believable results. Mm. So uh, a YouTube channel I'd recommend checking out is Captain Disillusion. He goes through. Mm. Um, he's a superhero. Themed guy who silver on his face. Yeah, he he debunks um, videos which have had doctoring done to them. So it's actually quite enlightening to see those kind of things. Yeah. So again, grain of salt when if you see these kinds of videos, if it claiming to be mm. a UFO sighting. Well, it's not just doctoring images. A mm. lot of the things that claim there to be UFOs are a very poor resolution. <laughs> yeah. So they'll much quite... like much like Tasmanian tiger sightings yes. as well. So quite often, or at least I've seen, like yeah. it cropping up in the media of like a spaceship around, I don't know, the moon or around yeah. the sun or something. And what the people that claim they've seen this thing have done is they've taken an image and they zoom into an aspect of the image yeah. and they keep zooming in. And there's a finite resolution to images. Yeah. You, can only, you can only go to a certain scale before it starts getting pixelated and noisy. Yeah. So effectively what these images are doing... If they're zooming into an image to a, a level where it's just 
getting dominated by noise and artifacts. You're, you're saying that you can't use the CSI enhance? No, you can't enhance. <laughs> I wish you could. You can't zoom and enhance. Yeah, there's a limit. So eventually you're just blowing up the noise. And often if you try yeah. and blow up the contrast or up your sensitivity, yeah. you get more noise. You just amplify that noise. So you might see some kind of blob, which mm. looks like it's something real. But really, it's just you've you've tortured the data enough such that it'll tell you what you want. Yeah. So this is something you've got to be careful about as well. If you see someone claiming that there's aliens or UFOs somewhere, take a look at the image and see can you can you identify pixels within that image? Yeah. And if you can, possibly it's been tortured. Yeah. And then you should call for help. <laughs> um yeah, unfortunately, there is no Geneva Convention on data torture, but perhaps <laughs> there should be. Yes. Um, but anyway, so to finish up, we can talk a bit about the modern efforts that mm. have been going into SETI. So SETI has been actually kind of revitalized recently yeah. through a particular individual and a couple of other people, but there's a main guy by the name of Yuri Milner. Mm. He's a Russian billionaire. Mm. He's poured a huge amount of his own personal finances mm. into what are called the breakthrough projects. Yes. So they're all efforts in order to try and either search for or make contact with intelligent life in our mm. galaxy. Now, the one of most relevance to kind of what we've been talking about is called Breakthrough Listen, yep. which is kind of an extension of what SETI has been doing. Mm. Um, but buying time, they've actually used that money mm. um, to buy time on some of the world's, on the world's best telescopes. Right. So the most sensitive single-dish radio telescopes, um, as well as optical telescopes as well, mm. um, to try and search for transients that could be of... Um, so things that change in the sky. Um, could from, be a UFO, could be an asteroid, yeah, or whatever. Think, you won't know if you don't look. Exactly. So they bought time on the Green Bank Telescope, the 101 mm. meter telescope we talked about before. That's in the Northern Hemisphere. Yep. In the Southern Hemisphere, they've bought time on Parks, the Parks okay. Radio Telescope, 64 mm. meter dish, um, famous from the movie The Dish. Mm. And it was made famous then because it um, helped um, keep communications going to the moon landing of mm. Apollo 11. Um, but And it's also an, been an incredible resource for radio astronomy. And I, in fact, pretty much all my data that I'm currently using actually comes from the Parkes mm. Radio Telescope. Have you found aliens in it? Not, well, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> Not yet, though. So the aim being for each of these telescopes, they, they want to look at um, they want to observe very closely. Mm. I think they, actually they bought a significant amount of time on parks. I think they bought nearly half oh, wow. the valuable observing time on parks. Jeez. Yeah, so it's a, a it's a good thing and a bad thing. It means there's less time going to astronomy, but it means that there's money coming into keeping these facilities running yeah. for astronomy. Because there are a lot of radio telescopes in Australia and it's getting to the point where they need to start thinking about closing them. Yeah, so we're kind of hitting saturation point a lot, a lot of the time and mm. there's only so much money to go around to keep these facilities going. But anyway, so the the purpose of what they're or what they're going aiming to observe with these is they want to observe all forty three stars that are within five parsecs of our sun. Okay. So a parsec is a unit of measurement that we use in astronomy. So roughly, I forget now. It's how many about parsecs? three light years to a parsec. Three light so years within to a parsec. Fifteen light year radiuses. Yeah. So there's forty three stars that are in there, and they want to observe them very carefully to see if there are signals coming from mm. them. They then want to observe um, going up again, each kind of stepping up in 
a level of detail. Um, they yep. want to observe um, a thousand stars of all different types. So then they're okay. being they're not being they're not discriminating kind of like the Drake equation does. They're observing yeah. all different types of stars within fifty parsecs. Okay. Then with less degree again, they want to observe a million nearby stars. Mm. They want to observe um, going out even further. Uh, at least a hundred nearby galaxies, so they want to wow. try and maybe pick up um, extra galactic communication. Possibly, how powerful would that need to be? Well, that's why they're using the um, well, obviously very bright emission, but yeah. that's why they're using um, these very large single dish telescopes because mm. they have extreme sensitivity. Okay. Now, obviously, with things coming online like the Square Kilometer Array, which we can talk about maybe in another time, yeah. but there's new radio telescopes which are coming online which will have very, very high sensitivity. But mm. for now, these large single dish telescopes are the best we've got okay. for very high sensitivity. Um, so it's all types of galaxies they want to look at as well as also some weird type um, stars across a broad um, range of um, radio radio frequencies. Yeah, and then they have follow up um, with an automate. They're developing software as like planet finders um, and also um, optical mm. follow up to look for planets. Okay, um, so it's all being automated and a lot of software oh, wow. going into processing all this data as well as a lot of hardware in terms of actually processing the data too. So there's a lot of money and a lot of thought being put into that's pretty cool the search so yeah so there's yeah, the automated planet finder which is a um optical spectroscopic study so it's looking at the colors of the optical light and following up the stars that are being observed in radio so they're looking for the radio yeah. signals from intelligent civilizations and then there'll be automatic follow-up to see if there are planets around those stars nice so let's break through listen and there's actually been a lot of people you know following this mm. um people like stephen hawking have put their names down in support yeah. of this project i think in the original press release it was stephen and um What's his face, Yuri? Yeah. They, were, they announced it together, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, so big stuff behind this. Mm. Now, kind of the, there might be a depressing end to this. Yeah. This is coming out of kind of the most recent research. And I know you, you might have your own criticisms of this, so I thought we'd finish off by discussing mm. what might actually be the case. So yeah. this is out of research that's come out of the ANU here. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so astrobiology is actually its own research field as well. Mm. So people who think about this kind of thing. It's not just SETI. So SETI is actually its own organization. Yeah. But people... Actually, there's multiple organizations. It's a bit messy because one of them is run out of Caltech. Another one's independent of Caltech. Yeah. So it's... It's its own thing, but all, there are astrobiology is a genuine research field which mm. goes into trying to search for um, or trying to find the conditions about where life can exist in, our, yeah. in the universe. And they actually genuinely do research on this sort of thing. Um, and so someone that you might come across, is a, he's a guy who appears on radio, on sorry, ABC TV and radios, a guy mm. by the name of um, Charlie Lineweaver, very enthusiastic American guy. You, you might spot him. Um, he and a student of his at the time, um, who was also at the ANU by the name of uh, Aditya Chopra, um, he mm. actually came and gave a talk um, not too long ago mm. and we were there. And there he explained the recently released paper, which was they made the case. The iron bottleneck. Exactly. So the the the, case, the paper, if you want to read it, it's called The Case for the Guy in Bottleneck. It's actually pretty readable mm. as well. So um, they talk about the, the biology of habitability. So how can they're looking at where can planets be habitable? Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'll read you the abstract yep. and I'll get your thoughts. The abstract's pretty short. Mm. So I'll, I'll get your 
your thoughts on it. Okay. So the prerequisites, so quote, the prerequisites and ingredients for life seem to be abundantly available in the universe. However, the universe does not seem to be teeming for life. So this is kind of the, mm. the Fermi paradox. Um, the most common explanation for this is the low probability for the emergence of life. So it's what's called an emergence bottleneck. Notionally due to the intricacies of, of molecular recipe. So they say that, you know, yep. maybe it's too biologically hard to yep. make it. Um, here we present an alternative guide bottleneck explanation, like you said. Mm. If life emerges on a planet, it only rarely evolves quickly enough to regulate greenhouse gases and albedo. So albedo mm. is how reflective your planet is. So, it's how, so it determines how much energy goes in and out. Yeah. Um, thereby maintaining surface temperatures compatible with liquid water and habitability. Mm. Such a guy in bottleneck suggests that, one, extinction is the cosmic default for most life that has ever emerged on the surfaces mm. of wet, rocky planets in the universe. And two, rocky planets need to be inhabited to remain habitable. Yeah. In the guy in bottleneck model... Um, the, maintain the maintenance of planetary habitability is a property more associated with a, an unusually rapid evolution of biological regulation on the, um, on the surface uh, so, sorry, of surface volatiles, so that's the kind yeah. of molecules that are there, um, than with a luminous luminosity and distance of the star. So they claim that the, the presence of life is perhaps more important to keeping it habitable mm. than actually the how bright your star is and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, the brightness of stars varies quite substantially over yeah. its lifetime. So when our sun was first forming, it had a much higher UV flux than what it does today. And yeah. I can't remember if it were... I think it was brighter as well and it's slowly dimmed since that time. Yeah. Um, so if you were just going purely based off the Goldilocks zone stuff, you would have found that Mars was originally in the Goldilocks zone and the Earth would have See, been too close to the sun. That's not too hot, not too cold. Yeah. So the Mars Mars would have been the place to have liquid water and where in the on Earth we would have been in the place where you would have thought it could be too hot or something yeah. like that. So this... It raises an interesting thing. So um, stars do change, so perhaps there is a controlling mechanism. And the, the planets are also quite volatile themselves. Earth has lots of volcanoes. It's had mass extinction events because of volcanic activity, yeah. which is kind of brought back, I guess, by, by life doing its thing. Yeah, so they, they argue, I guess, fundamentally that life being there, if it evolves quickly enough, mm. that life being there will regulate the atmosphere and the temperature and also change the surface of that planet yeah. such that it will remain habitable and that in the for most cases mm. they argue that the art life can't evolve fast enough yeah. to keep up with sudden changes and that mass extinction happens too quickly and so all the aliens are dead and that's what a lot of the if you kind of google this article that's yeah. what the headline said well, the, so the first time this was explored, I guess, was with uh, the Daisy Planet simulation. Mm. So this was a simulation where they had two types of uh, flowers. They had uh, white daisies with a high albedo, so they reflect a lot of light, and black daisies with a low, so they absorb a lot of light. And they just chucked these on a, on a surface, and then they had a, they had a constant source of light, and they just let the simulation run. Uh, of course, the white ones didn't like uh, cold environments, so they died, and the black ones didn't like... Well, the, the plants just didn't like too hot or too cold environments, yeah. right? 
so they let the simulation run and they just sat in equilibrium. That was nice. Then they changed the, the flux or the amount of light coming onto the surface. And if they decreased the amount of light, then the black daisy would take over to keep the surface temperature constant. And if they increased the brightness, the white one would take over to keep the surface temperature constant again. So this simulation is, of course, very simplistic. Uh, and if you build layers of complexity on it like people have done, you get a similar kind of thing. The, the ecosystem, the life kind of feeds into it itself to keep it stable. Mm. And you, ha you have a, I guess, it's far too complicated to model with the Earth, but there's no reason to suggest we should throw that idea that works on a simple case out just because we can't model it. Yeah. And we do have examples of life engineering the environment. I mean, you have forests, which uh, increase the albedo. Yeah, so the, the earth, if you look at maps, you know, you can see the green. Mm. Um, it changes the, so the color changes how much light is reflected and absorbed. Yeah. Um, or, you know, plankton and algae, you know, in the oceans changes it significantly. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting prospect as to... And if you go back and far enough in time, you'll get to the first great extinction that happened of yeah. the cyanobacteria yeah. where they uh, killed themselves by polluting. So they took in, I forget what they took in, but they expelled oxygen, Yeah. Uh, which is, for the most part, quite deadly to life. Yeah. So they... Ironically. Yes. <laughs> despite our current or uh, life being based around it effectively. Uh, so they, they poison themselves over time because they mm. fill the atmosphere with oxygen, which they had no way to cope with. So yeah. life can yeah. influence a planet. And in that example, life was able to evolve quickly enough to actually use all that abundant oxygen yeah. rather than be killed by it. Yes, it could have easily have been the case, and perhaps it's the case on other worlds where yeah. there there isn't that mutation which allows them to deal with oxygen. They just all get killed off by yeah. their own pollution. So I, on that kind of sad note, <laughs> it's probably a good place to, to finish up, which is that this area is one of which there's active research going on. People are thinking very carefully yeah. about this. So there's both people trying to understand the probabilities and the, the physics and the chemistry that goes into forming life or life as we close to understand it on mm. other planets. There's people going into trying to find evidence for it as well through things like um breakthrough listen whether or not they might be there or not is perhaps yeah. under question you have to look to find though yeah so i think that aspect of it i think is actually fundamentally important i think mm. it's actually a really interesting area of research in that are we alone like we said at the start is a a fundamental question of what we want to mm. know as a species um but i think that 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 question has driven a lot of us to try and find things where they're not necessarily there yeah. and interpret some things that we we do understand very well. So certain parts of human experience, whether they be sleep paralysis or pranks or mm. things in the, that go pop in the sky, yeah. to be things that they're not. Um, so I, I guess, guess what, what would you call that? Let's Which, summarize um, yeah. crop circles. Um, BS. Yeah, I'll, I'll go yeah, with BS as well. Um, abductions in the late of night. Yeah, BS. Yeah, I'm convinced by your argument. That's yeah. BS. Uh, what else did we have? Lights in the sky. Ah. Uh, that's most likely BS, but, yeah. you know. There, there are some actually really interesting things going on there. Yes. Real science that you can do with yes. being lights in the sky, um, whether they be from the Earth or from out in the universe. Mm. Yeah. So that's... I'll, I'll stay neutral on that one, yeah. but if... 
if uh, if you see a light in the sky and then say, "All right, that's an alien," I'm convinced. I'll I'll call BS on yeah. that. So what what do you think of SETI and Breakthrough Listen? I I think it's science. Yeah, it's where we've this is is this oh no the first is this the first time of. We're saying I'm saying something science. science? Oh my god! I know, and this I'm saying it's science as well, and this is coming from I have a bias maybe against them because they because they're stealing your time. Yeah, they well they haven't stolen. They bought they bought it, but they're using that to buy a lot of telescope time. Mm. But even so, I think it is an important thing to do, and having those answers, I think, will be whether we see anything or not, is of great relevance to a lot of people, Mm. I think, to the species as a whole. Mm. Yeah, and what was the final? Th- was that the final the, thing? We no, and then about? we have the guy in bottlenecks. So oh yes, the, that's so the, so the answers to the Fermi paradox and to Drake the Drake equation. Yeah, that's real science. And you know, people have put a lot of thought into this, and they're still it's still going on. Because that was um, that paper. Was, I, I knew Artie, um, and that paper was kind of his uh, the culmination of his PhD, which yeah. took quite a long time. Yeah, because he. Astrobiology is a pretty undefined field. So yeah. he entered it and just explored this entirely broad subject to try and work out how life starts and yeah. are there aliens, which is and a real scientific question you can ask. Yeah, and there actually is quite a lot of science that we've skipped over that goes into that paper. So, mm-hmm. And it's relatively easy to read, so I'd recommend that you search it out again. So it's available for free um, through the astrobiology paper. So it's called The Case of the Guy in Bottleneck. Um, by Adita Tropia and Charles H. We can, Lineweaver. We, we can, can put link that, that link somewhere. in the description. Yeah. Um, and that's real science as well, I'm happy to say. Yeah. So, go ANU. <laughs> and speaking of Go ANU, um, we'd like to get, again thank the um, ANU Center for the Public Awareness of Science, which is supporting this podcast um, both technologically and emotionally. <laughs> um, and with that, We'd like to thank you again for listening. Leave a comment and, yeah, we'll see you next time.